Romans 13, verses 8 through 14. It's also on the first page of the handout. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. To fulfill its lusts. You may be seated. Now we spent time walking through the particular commandments that were listed out. We went through the second table of the law from the fifth to the tenth commandments. And we saw how the Westminster Larger Catechism had dealt with them. So let me simply remind you the main point of verses 8 through 10. I have there under point one, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, and I skipped over the listing there, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So, first we have a command to owe no one anything except to love one another. So we've talked about the meaning there, the idea that there's an obligation to do what the law commands, and we have no other obligations. There are no obligations except for those that are imposed by God. That's because obligation, ought, comes from the law of God. There is no moral standing, there is no ethic apart from what God has commanded in His Word. And so, we have a duty of love, a duty to do what God commands. He who loves has fulfilled the law. The law and the commandments are the same thing. Therefore, the law and the commandments are the same thing as love. So, the commandments are headed up again in the saying, love your neighbor as yourself. So that word that's summed up, that's ana kephaliutai. Now, you can see, if you go to the next page, Kephale is head, and Anna is again. So this idea that it's to head up again. Uh, in, in Latin, there's the word that comes to English as recapitulate. Okay, the re is the same as Anna, it's again. And the cap, or the word capital, is based upon a head, right? And so it's to head up again, to sum up. And so what there, this is the idea of a, a head of doctrine. You, you have... Ephesians 1.10 talks about how um, in Christ all things are, they have the same word, it's gathered up in one. And the idea there is that Christ's work, Christ's life, sort of resummarizes the whole of what is revealed in the scripture and sort of resummarizes God's purpose in history. And so that also occurs with church, with the church. And that's where the book of Ephesians goes and it talks about this idea of of the maturing of the church in the rest of the book. So this capturing of the law, the law is summarized, it's headed up, that there are are heads of doctrine, points of doctrine, as the Ten Commandments are, but the word love captures all of it. All of the law. So love is obedience to the law. Love is seeking the good of the neighbor. Now, Everybody always does what they think is good. That's why you do it. You pick the thing you think is best. You always do. And the problem is, you're wrong. 
That's the problem. How many times have you chosen something stupid and then thought back on it and realized you were wrong? At the time, you chose it because you thought it was best. Beforehand and even after, you might have thought this was dumb. But at the moment you chose it, you thought it was the best. We always do what we think is best. And the issue is that we are wrong and we need instruction. We are ignorant and we have error. And so love is seeking the good of the neighbor. And the law teaches us how to seek the good of the neighbor. It also teaches you how to seek your own good. Love does not do harm. Love does no harm to the neighbor because seeking the good of the neighbor is seeking the non-harm, the non-evil, right? When you seek somebody's good, you're not seeking their harm. If you seek somebody's harm, you are not seeking their good. Hopefully this is obvious, but this is not the normal reading of this text. It's obvious upon reflection, but this is not the normal reading of this text. Reformed people are not the majority of persons. I'm sure that's a surprise to you all. And even amongst Reformed people, the clear intention of this text of teaching that this is a statement about the sufficiency of the law, it's a statement about the regulative principle of life, that what is good to do is revealed by the law, and we should always be doing what the law requires. That is not the way most people, even most Reformed people, read this text. But the argument only makes sense in light of that. The therefores make it so that we have to have a coherent argument. Otherwise, the therefores become meaningless, and the word of God becomes vain. Meaningless words in this text of Scripture make God's word vain, useless. There is not an extra iota in the text of Scripture. Every jot and tittle is important and meaningful. And so the therefores, which show us the connections of arguments, help us to understand the line of thought. Love does no harm to the neighbor because seeking the good of the neighbor is seeking the non-harm of the neighbor. Seeking the harm of the neighbor is seeking the non-good of the neighbor. Those are compliments. In other words, so you can be seeking the good or seeking the non-good of the neighbor. The law of the excluded middle shows that the non-harm is the good and the non-good is harm. That's necessary here for the reading to make any sense. The therefore requires that there's a conclusion that necessarily follows, which means that these terms have to be complements. This is because failure to do duty is harm. If you don't do something you owe to somebody else, that's a sin of omission. You are failing to do a duty, and that's harm. If you are next to your friend, and you see a car barreling toward them, and you watch when you could have simply grabbed them and pulled them to get out of the way of the car, if you watch, you have murdered them. And so failures to act when there is a duty to act is harm. Owe no one anything except to love them, but you have a duty to love. That is the line of argument. A failure to do a duty is harm. We are to always do the best and highest good at every moment. This is the perfection of the law. We are always to do the best thing. Every moment is a moment where it is your duty to do the best thing. And how far and few are those moments where we do the best thing? It is our duty to do the best and highest good at every moment. Because every time we do something less, even if we do a good work that's not the best and highest thing, 
It might be the second best and highest thing. Right? Infinite number of things you could choose to do, and you do the second best and highest one. It's particularly great. You pick the second best and highest thing you could possibly have done with that moment. And the opportunity cost of that is the best. If you haven't done the best and highest thing, the cost is that best and highest thing. Therefore, if no harm is done, then good is done. And if no good is done, then harm is done. Love does no harm to the neighbor. Therefore, it is the fulfillment of the law. What I've just laid out for you here is the only way that conclusion makes sense is if harm and good are complements here. Love does not seek the harm of the neighbor, but rather it seeks the good of the neighbor, and the law teaches us how to seek the good of the neighbor. And if the good, then not the harm. And if not the harm, then the good. Thus, love is a fulfilling of the good of the object. It's the fulfilling of the law. So verse 11. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Do this. Do what? What is the pronoun this referring to? It's going back and saying, Oh no one anything except to love one another. Therefore, love one another without further obligation. Therefore, love one another without further obligation, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Okay. So, love each other without further obligation. Knowing the time. What time is it, Paul? What's, what is he talking about? What is the time? Is this some sort of like perpetually renewing time? Like, it's the time now? Like, whoever's reading this, whenever they're reading it, knowing the time. The perpetual now. Now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And that's sort of the common reading. Well, it's always a time that's closer to our salvation than earlier. And so, now is always the time that's closer. And so, it's a perpetual now. It's sort of the now for the believer. And so there's this existential reading. That, that you as the reader, the time for you when you're reading this, is a time that's closer to your salvation than when you first believed. If that's the case, there's nothing particularly special about now. It's just it happens to be now. And so, sure, every moment is further along in history than the prior moment and closer to the achieving of something later in history. But I want to posit to you that Paul is not talking about a perpetual now, but he's talking about the time he wrote. And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So the high time to awake out of sleep. Why is it time to awake out of sleep? There's a time that is coming into day. The idea is that night is time for the sleeping. And we also have to ask ourselves, what is this awaking it is, there's a lot of language here that we have to figure out, we have to unpack what is being talked about. And so, when you come in and read the scriptures, you need to not just impose whatever you happen to think of first when you get to a text. What you need to do is to define the terms there. The way you define the term is you try to figure out 
what are the possible meanings? What are the possible meanings? So one of the great benefits of, of Bible dictionaries, for example, is typically people have done the work of collecting different senses in which you can interpret a word. And so that work that's been done before us, if you have Bible dictionaries and you look up a word, you're able to kind of have a set of possible interpretations. Now, they can miss it. They can miss the possible interpretation. That's why it's nice to have multiple. Commentaries are beneficial because they're going through the process of thinking about different interpretations. The thing about a dictionary is it doesn't eliminate any possibilities on a particular context. It's giving you all the ways that word is used in different contexts. Whereas commentaries, what's happening is some pastor is trying to figure out which senses have been illuminated by the context or by the systematic comparison of doctrines or the grammar. And so trying to go through and find the proper sense. Now, it's obvious when you look at this text that he's not talking about the literal rising of the sun. That there's something that's going on where there's a symbolism. It's a night and day that are symbolic. And so what are they symbols for? And so we have to understand that from the context. So if you try to come with the perpetual now, right? You read it and it says, and do this knowing the time, that now is it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. You're going to come at this and go, okay, what kind of salvation is being talked about? If we're already believers, then this must be talking about something about my personal salvation that is, that is closer. Is that talking about glorification? So I'm going to die, or I'm going to, Christ is going to return and judge, and there's going to be a resurrection and judgment, um, and then I'm going to be saved from all the problems of toil and strife and, and death, either because I've already died or Christ returned before I died. And so the salvation there is sort of a getting removed from the struggle of this life. Therefore, struggle hard because you're closer to not having to struggle. That's the, the way of reading that. Is it particularly motivating to you when somebody says to you, I know it's painful and hard right now, but you should struggle and go through pain because it's going to end soon. Does the line of argument there motivate you to press into the pain? So let's consider an alternative line. Go to the next page. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. So the night is far spent. How does the night relate to our salvation? Well, it's common in Scripture to relate night to ignorance and error, right? darkness of the mind. It's common to point darkness to profanation, right? Because think about holiness in distinction. Holiness has to do with the differentiation of things. And profanation has to do with a mixing of things that ought not to be mixed. A failure to separate. A failure to maintain cleanness. Right? Cleanness is just dirt being where it's not supposed to be. Sorry, not cleanness. Filthiness, dirtiness is just dirt being where it's not supposed to be. And cleanness is when it's where it's supposed to be. You don't eliminate the dirt when you sweep out a house or even when you vacuum, you've just placed it better. The night is far spent. So this night, you think about ignorance and error, profanation, sin, sorrow, and darkness and sin, darkness and sorrow, hopelessness. So you probably have scriptures running through your head right now that relate to those various things. On the other side, we have day, days at hand. How does the day relate to our salvation? Well, think about faith and light, right? Knowledge and light. Holiness or purity. Righteousness, joy. You can find texts relating these things. 
So the night is the time of darkness and the day is the time of light. The salvation is the salvation explained in the context. Chapters 11, 12, 13, and I dare say 14. And so when you look at the context around it, chapter 11 was about an olive tree. Chapter 11 was about the Jews being separated out from the visible church and the nations being brought into the visible church and the Jews being brought in again and how that would be a sort of resurrection of the world. Chapter 12 was about as an individual seeking to live your life as an acceptable sacrifice. Chapter 12, towards the end of it, talked about working together with our various gifts, and there was an emphasis on the fifth commandment in terms of leadership gifts. Chapter 13 started with leadership gifts, in particular with the civil magistrate. And then we moved into the duty of love, and now there is a call to act in a manner that is fitting to the light. Because... The night is far spent, and the day is at hand. And then chapter 14 is going to go into how do we deal with food laws and holiness day laws? And in particular, how do you deal with the conscience of Jewish Christians who are offended by the way the Gentiles are dealing with food and holy days? The end of the Old Covenant, the judgment that comes on the persecuting Jews, the freedom of the Gentile church, the increase of sanctification that occurs in individuals, the maturing of the church in doctrine, practice, and in the division of labor being effective, which is chapter 12. The resurrection of the world in bringing all the nations, including the Jews, the glorification of individual saints after their death and the return of Christ and the general resurrection and the reward. These are all things that salvation could be referring to. And I want to posit for you just as love is a head of doctrine that captures the whole law, this word salvation, the salvation that we are nearer to than when we first believed, is capturing all of that. It's not just try hard because soon you'll die and you won't have to try anymore. It is try hard because this is the time when the old covenant is falling away and your enemies that persecute you now will soon be destroyed. And there is a time when the word will go out and the nations will be brought in. There is an ingathering that occurs, a way in which the nations will be powerfully brought in. And this is the twilight. This is the time between night and day. The night is far spent. And the day is at hand. The twilight is that time when the sun has not yet peaked over the horizon, but its light illuminates the atmosphere. It is a time where you can see, a time with light, but not the dawning. And this period of time between the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, that time from there until the judgment on Jerusalem is the time of twilight. It is the days of Messiah. It is that period of time of the overlap between the two administrations with the covenant of grace in the old and new covenants. When the scriptures were being completed. Christians are already saved in the sense of being effectually called. They're already justified. They're already adopted. They're definitely sanctified. They're being progressively sanctified. The things that await us are the completion of dominion, the great commission, our glorification, and the blessedness of the resurrected state. We are closer to those things than when we first believed. Paul is already in the New Covenant era, but the work of the New Covenant era of completing the work of dominion and discipleship are also in process. They're not completed. The salvation of glorification and the resurrection are closer. The night is far spent. It's not necessarily your own life that is 
the night. It's, it's rather a view of history as a whole. It's the time of Paul's writing. The whole of the Old Covenant era, when you look, you have in the covenant of works, Adam failing, and you have the giving of the covenant of grace in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 4, you have the separation of the church and the world, as there is a murder of brother against brother, and the city of man separates from the city of God. So there's a visible difference. You then have the decline of the earth in swift succession to be filled with blood, followed by a sea of water that cleanses the earth of the city of man. And the city of God is brought through it on an ark. And afterward, the city of God again has the city of man come out of it because sinfulness has not been removed. And so you have... In the covenant of grace, in Genesis 9, you have the giving of the civil magistracy for the restraint of the sea of blood. That it would not happen again so that the church would be preserved. But from that point, even with Abraham and the giving of a visible sign of distinction, and then with Moses and the giving of a visible sign of renewal, it was not sufficient. The church conquers, the Israel conquers the promised land. And then... It decays. And there is no order. And a king, contrary to the law of God, is imposed and then mercifully used by God to prepare for the messianic king. And so, the king with a temple, a stable temple, fails. And there is a decline. And the majority of the tribes separate and rebel and commit themselves to idolatry. And the southern tribes profane themselves and run after other gods. And they're taken into captivity. And the earth is filled with darkness. And that glimmering, small number of souls that are preserved in the faith are returned to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple and to be ready for the coming of Christ into the world. And when Christ comes to that glimmering white city on a hill, they murder him. That is the darkness of the night. That is the run of history in its night. And when Christ was resurrected, and then ascended and sat at the right hand of the Father and sent the Holy Spirit to empower the apostles in the middle of Jerusalem to speak and take from their number those who had opposed Christ and to bring them to bow the knee to Christ. There was a bringing in of Jews and then a bringing in of Gentiles and then the destruction of Jerusalem and the ingathering of the nations, and the casting back of the darkness and the filling of the earth with light. That is the day. We stand now in the day. When Paul was writing, he was in the twilight. The period of time between the ascension of Christ and the destruction of the temple was a sort of time when the light of the sun comes over the horizon, but has not yet peaked over the edge of the horizon. The completion of the scriptures and the ending of the Old Covenant period definitely is an end of the night. A time when the nations are to be brought in in force. Romans was written in the time of twilight when the sun was hidden, but its light appeared. Chapter 14 focuses on transition into the New Covenant as a follow-up. And so we are told, because the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Casting off the works of darkness is obviously a getting rid of the, the, the works themselves. But you look at this contrast. It's the works of darkness and the armor of light. What's armor for? What, are, what is protective gear and offensive weaponry for? It's for the work of fighting. And so the works of darkness, that's a sort of fighting And it's a fighting against the spirit. It's a fighting against the church. It's a fighting against the king of the church. 
And so there are tools of darkness. And so when we look at the text that follows on, right, it says, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. The provision for the flesh is having the tools, the occasions, the setup for the flesh, for sin. So the way you cast off the works of darkness involves removing the implements of darkness and getting rid of those tools that you use for darkness. And instead, getting the armor of light. You have the equipment, the tools to do good works, and that helps you. You set up the space to avoid stumbling blocks. You have the tools, and you use the tools, and you do good work. And that is what is fitting for the daytime. These are the tools that are appropriate for the day. The armor of light. So we cast off the works of darkness. This casting off, have you ever had a time where somebody looked at you and they realized that there was something disgusting or terrifying, probably an insect or arachnid of some variety, on your person or near your person? And once you realized it, you flipped out, right? You struck at that thing as though it was going to murder you, maybe it would have, and you removed it from you, right? There's this like, that reaction, the reaction, that right there. This is the kind of reaction we ought to have to the tools of darkness. We ought to cast them off like a disgusting realization that there is a cockroach walking on your face. That is the reaction that we should have to sin and the tools of sin. Saw physical reactions with some of that one. Gotcha. And so that idea of the presence of the tools of darkness and the works of darkness, the, the disgustingness of it, ought to have a reaction, this casting off type of reaction. And let us instead put on the armor of light. So we put on the offensive and defensive arms that allow for the Christian to be productive. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20 lays out the components of this. I've got it there for you so you can look at it in context. But I'm going to look at verses 14 through 17 and then a little bit at the verses that follow. Um, So I'm going to read the, the whole of it and I'll only talk about those verses. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, similarly, when you read this, you know, are we supposed to pray for, for Paul? Right? Kind of like, is, when Paul was talking earlier, is that like the eternal now, like we're, we're in the now that he was in? And should we also pray for Paul? Right? Paul's writing is, when he's talking about the now... He's talking about the historical moment he's in. And we ought not to pray for Paul. We should not pray for the dead. There is no warrant in Scripture for praying for the dead. So we don't pray for Paul, but you should pray. You should look at this category and say, who are those that are called to the preaching of the ministry? Pray for them to preach well. So, the girding of the waste with truth. The truth is something that helps you to have readiness of action. The breastplate of righteousness 
having the righteousness of Christ that's covering us, but also a way in which personal righteousness helps to guard you against harm. The preparation of the feet, the shodding of the feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace makes ready your ability to move, but also the context is a repeated order to stand. 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 And so the idea is that the gospel of peace gives you a peace of mind that allows you to not run away. And so the helm of salvation, salvation is a crown and glory, and it also is a guard of the head. So that there is no mortal wound, the eternal life cannot be taken away. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, gives power to be able to resist the enemy. It is a strictly offensive weapon, whereas the other parts are protective gear. This is a strictly offensive weapon, and it is the thing that is used to push back the darkness. It is the thing that is used to overcome the enemy. So there's prayer and supplication in the Spirit. There's being watchful. These are activities. These are things that are to be done. And at the same time, prayer is a weapon. You can pray for Christians throughout the world. The benefit of mobility and swiftness, the power that it brings to bear. Prayer is the airstrike of the Christian church. And being watchful is about paying attention to the time. Right, so there's this idea in Romans of you know, understanding the time. Well, what's the time? The time is the time of the twilight. And so we should always be watchful about the time and about the particular dangers of our time. We should be, as the men of Issachar, understanding the times. And so by being aware of the times, we understand the application of the law that's fitting. We know the best and highest use of ourself and our resources by the law applied to the time. And so we should meditate on the law day and night and trust God to help us to see how to apply the law in the particular situation. And so that watchfulness is the watchfulness of looking for what to do at what time. And then a calling of prayer for the saints as you see opportunity. And Paul gives a particular example, the request to pray for himself. So this putting on of the armor light of light is explained for us in more detail there in Ephesians. The law of God gives great instruction in it. There is a, a set of equipment, and then the law tells us what to do when. And the practice of the law is a training. And when we fail to do it properly, God disciplines, he trains. And he has instruments for training, including church officers and parents and husbands. And civil magistrates are training for the elect, but only punishment for the reprobate. And so there is this way in which we look at this set of equipment and we look at our calling to walk and to put on the armor of light. And that's the explanation that's given for us in another text about what that armor is. So verse 13, let us walk properly as in the day. That properness is already defined for us. What's the proper walking? The proper walking is the walking in love. And how do we know what love is? The law of God. And so we study the law of God, we meditate on it day and night, and that makes it so that we are able to walk in a manner that is appropriate to the day. And so then there's a giving out for us of the things that are not fitting for the day, that are more appropriate to the night. The things that are hatred. Revelry, drunkenness, lewdness, lust, strife, and envy are given here. Revelry has to do with partying in such a way as to amuse yourself, to avoid thinking, right? So it's just sort of a, a partying, a feasting, 
um, a kind of gluttonous eating and enjoying of pleasures and avoiding of serious thought. It's an amusing self with the pleasures of the flesh. So a violation of the seventh commandment. Drunkenness has to do also with the deadening of the mind, the use of a drug to seek to reduce the mind's clarity and to help to gladden the heart and avoid thinking about troubles. And so drunkenness is also a violation of the seventh commandment, a misuse of pleasures in an effort to deaden out thought. Lewdness, this word actually comes from the word for bed in the Greek. And so the idea is it relates to sexuality. And so this misuse of sexuality, so taking a seventh commandment issue and this sort of using of sexual pleasure to distract the self, to amuse the self, to not do what's good, but instead the pursuing after that. The word for lust there uh, is not the usual word for desire, but it is rather a, a word having to do with ignoring of, of cleanness, or a, you can translate it as licentiousness. And so this, this uh, pursuing of things that are unclean and ignoring of cleanness. So these are all about these three, these three things, the revelry, drunkenness, and lewdness. They are all a, a misuse of pleasure-seeking, food, drink, sex, in such a way as to not differentiate between proper use and improper use. Now, strife follows that. Strife is fighting with others over the finite false goods. And if you think that feasting parties, getting drunk, and getting sexual gratification of the good, that's going to result in fighting over the finite capacity to get those things. That will lead to strife. And so a false view of the good, when you make something that's finite into the good, it's going to result in strife. So what's the real good? The real good is the knowledge of God. And when you share it, it increases, both for the one who shares and the one who receives. Do you see how that view of the good and behavior that accords with it, rather than leading to strife, would lead to cooperation. Envy, the evil desire, think about covetousness. And that results in strife, obviously. It's the, it's the cause of strife. So there's sort of this book ending. It's like strife is the middle piece here. You have things that you could desire wrongly. The failure to differentiate between the right use and wrong use. The strife, and then this idea that the wrong desire for those things, for example, leads to strife. Verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. The flesh desires disorderly partying. The flesh desires escapism into drunk drunkenness. The flesh desires Sexual gratification without bounds. We're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to put on the armor of light and then to use it in a manner that honors Christ. And we are to not make provision. We are to not put on the equipment for the flesh. And we are not to fulfill the desires of the flesh. And so this is the contrast that's laid before us. We are given here a reminder that there is a nighttime, a darkness, and there is a daytime, a time of light. And we, brethren, are in the time of light when the church has gone out to the ends of the earth and it is leavening the lump. The world is being filled with the gospel. And the church will be preserved. And the church will triumph. Christ will not be defeated. And our faith will not be smothered. It will see the victory. And our sin will be reduced. And we will see the fruits of the Spirit come forth from our limbs. And it will come out of our fingertips. And proceed from our mouth. 
When Christ is talked about in the book of Revelation, you have in the first three chapters the introduction of Christ to John. And it is said of him that a sword proceeds from his mouth. And he has given us that sword as a part of our equipment, and it proceeds from our mouth too. We have been given the armor of light, an armor that is fitting for the daytime, and we are called to put it to use. Your daily private worship and your daily household worship is a time of equipping. And your life in between them is the time of application and the use of these tools. And we are to be watchful as we go about our day and pray. If you were a soldier and you had the capacity to call down an airstrike whenever you saw the enemy, you had infinite reserves of missiles and planes. Your ability to win the fight would be overwhelming. You walk around and call down airstrikes on every individual enemy you see. We have that power in prayer. We can call down from heaven perfectly accurate, properly discriminating weapons. God never hits a target wrongly. There are no innocent that get hit by the shrapnel. His high explosives do no harm to the righteous. And they incinerate his foes. So we are called to be awake. So what is that awakening that we are called to? The awakening is the call to realize the finitude of time. Your days are few and you must number them. And so if you number them and you realize that you're called to do the best and highest use of your time, the meditation on the law of God, memorizing, if you don't have the Ten Commandments memorized, memorize them. If you don't know how to explain them, at least at the level of the shorter catechism, get that down. If you've got it to the place where you can explain the Ten Commandments in a way that the shorter catechism explains them, start studying the larger catechism and figure out a way of in detail applying the law of God. In self-defense training, you focus on things like how do you quickly draw? How do you place your sight on target quickly? How do you have follow-up shots without moving your firearm? How do you have the second shot where you pull the trigger less rather than more so that you can reduce the movement of the front of the gun? You figure out how to reload quickly. You figure out when you look for opportunities to reload. You figure out how to clear jams of various kinds. When there's a squib, what do you do? Many of you have gone through basic defense training, and so you understand the various things you do there. The law of God gives us explanations in detail of how to use our weapons. Studying the law of God involves pulling together the various things that touch on the same subject. And the larger catechism is the work of the church gone before us, pulling together the various commandments that apply under the same category. All of the rules about how to reload have been gathered together under one commandment. As opposed to trying to search them out and find them throughout the whole of the thousand pages of Scripture, It has already been pulled together for you so that all of the things that the scriptures say about reloading is there in one place. It is a systematic manual, and that's the work of the church in maturing, is to pull together the word of God in systematic array and to make it available for quick equipping. When you simply have the Bible, what you have is a drawer of goods. And when you organize it together and systematize it under heads of doctrine, you have them there in foam cutout properly ordered for quick grabbing and putting to use. It is a type of dominion work to make it easier for us. The being awake is paying attention. It's being watchful. It's looking for the enemy and looking for friends, discriminating between targets and acting properly towards friends and acting properly towards enemies. The being awake is redeeming the time. Ephesians 5.15 says, See then that you walk circumspectly. Circumspectly is walk in such a way that you see all around. Like circa, around. So this 
Walk in such a way that you're looking all around you, being watchful. Not as fools, but as wise, right? Not failing to discriminate between good and evil, but instead discriminating between good and evil. Being wise, knowing the difference between good and evil. Redeeming the time. Right? You, you can tell the difference between good and evil, between good and bad, between right use and wrong use. And so now, put the time to right use. Because the days are evil. Jonathan Edwards, when he was a young man, wrote a series of resolutions as a way of binding himself to seek to apply the law of God in detail in his life. His fifth resolution was the following. Resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. That is the attitude of a Christian who is awake. The idea that you are watchful to look for proper use. There's a famous father of the church named Aurelius Augustine. He had been struggling for some time in the city of Milan under the preaching of Ambrose, a famous preacher. He became convicted of his sins but felt like he couldn't put them down. He couldn't cast them off. And so he found himself continuing to struggle with sexual sin and not committing himself to seek to apply the teachings of Christianity. He was wrestling in his soul one day and over the garden wall he heard the sing-song voice of a child say, Tolulege, Tolulege, which means take and read. Take and read. He had sitting before him a copy of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And so, having heard that, he grabbed the parchment of the scriptures and looked, and where his eyes fell was to Romans chapter 13, verse 13. And it said, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. He was struck to the heart. He was baptized. And he soon thereafter became a great servant of the Lord and a blessing to the church. The word of God is powerful. It can give life to the dead. And where we have spiritual deadness, pray that God would use it to awaken your soul, to put off the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would awaken our souls, that you would give us strength, that you would help us to overcome the darkness. We ask that you would cause us to use the tools that you've given to us. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it for the nourishment of our souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have any comments, questions, objections from the voting members, those with speaking rights?